The following is a podcast from Ballin Entertainment. The Stratford Slice is sponsored in part by Dancing Waters Boutique, treasures from Asia in the heart of downtown Stratford. Visit them at 11 York Street or dancingwatersboutique.com. And a special shout-out to Vista Radio and our friends at mystratfordnow.com for hosting the podcast. This podcast is produced by Ballin Entertainment, Southwestern Ontario's number one film, television, and digital media studio. Illuminating extraordinary stories since 1995. Visit us at ballinran.com. Hello, it's Craig Thompson, and this is the Stratford Slice. Today, we probe the depths of psychological thrillers with best selling novelist Andrew Piper. Andrew Piper, welcome to the Stratford Slice. Thank you. Before we dive into your impressive literary career, I want to explore our our common connection to Northern Ireland. And actually, you and I were in the same village on the same day last July. You were in Port Rush, and so was I. uh, Because, I know that, because I follow you on Instagram, and you hadn't yet followed me. And here we were in in Northern Ireland, where my family is from, and where you are, uh, where your family is from. We were in the same uh, uh, village. We didn't go to the same pub, but uh, we were in the same spot. Well, I was about to say... (laughs) I was about to say, I'm shocked we didn't bump into each other at uh, one of the pubs. Yeah, well, we had gone to Dunluce's Castle and uh, done the Giant's Causeway, and we went for lunch in um, uh, went for lunch in, in uh, Port Rush. And I was just, you know, as you're sitting around waiting for food to arrive, you're scanning your Instagram because you can never get away from your phone. And oh, Andrew is uh, here in Port Rush too. Well. He's probably really yeah. busy, so I won't uh, bother him. And we hadn't yet had connected. So, so tell me, <laughs> That's if, tell me about your uh, Northern Irish roots. Uh, your parents were born there. Were you born there yourself? I wasn't. My parents uh, emigrated from Northern Ireland in the uh, mid '50s, and uh, um, came to essentially immediately to Stratford, um, more or less arbitrarily. My my dad was a, an eye surgeon, eye doctor. And Stratford, well, at that time, he served the entire county, really, as an ophthalmologist, the only ophthalmologist. And uh, so there was a job opening. Uh, he didn't know Stratford from from Timbuktu, but uh, it turned out to be very fortuitous because he raised uh, an entire family there, myself included, uh, born some years after that. But um, so I was born in Stratford. But um, when growing up, I would go back to Northern Ireland with my parents essentially every year to visit family. What part of uh, Ulster? Well, Port Rush. Port Rush. Oh, my, oh, that's the actual spot. Okay. Yeah, my dad w- was raised in Port Rush. My, my grandfather was the Presbyterian minister on the main street of Port Rush for okay. years. So, uh, um, so yeah, it's, my dad grew up playing golf at the famous Royal Port Rush Golf yes. Course, which uh, really was the initiator, the reason for the pilgrimage last summer that you mentioned. I played and was thoroughly uh, humiliated uh, on the links at Port Rush. Oh, okay. Uh, my family's further south in County Down, uh, just near Kilkeel. So uh, the trip up to the north coast was a, a day trip with my uh, wife and daughter. 
and we were visiting cousins and relatives uh, in in uh, Northern Ireland last summer. So wonderful, wonderful spot. Well, that leads me to my next question. So uh, with your Northern Irish uh, straight-laced Presbyterian <laughs> background, where you're expected to you know follow the uh, straight and narrow. How did you so dramatically veer off script into the world of psychological thrillers? That's a very good question. Um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of, uh, uh, of that in the DNA, you would think, right? You know, I've already revealed my grandfather was a Presbyterian minister. Uh, so um, straight and narrow was, the, was very much the course. But um, I think it was in part... I always, I mean, I loved, I was the youngest by a wide margin. So my next sibling in age was uh, you know, nine years older than me. And then it got, they got older from there. So they were like in university, they were gone. I was uh, still a kid and as sort of a de facto only child, really at that stage. My parents were quite a bit older too. So they were kind of, look, we're done. We're done parenting, you know, just. just so go daydream. <laughs> go day, exactly. Go daydream. So I. I just gobbled up books and I didn't have any real guidance. So I would be reading Alice Monroe or Dickens on one hand or one day and then Stephen King on the other. And there was no one to say, hey, hold on, you're you're mixing genres or uh, you shouldn't do that or this is the right or wrong way to do it. And so I kind of that I think that was the the, the origin of writing thrillers that um, hopefully have a kind of a basis in. Uh, whether it's reality or character or, uh, you know, a little bit more nutritious than, than a purely kind of superficial uh, roller coaster ride. Now, you initially pursued a career in law uh, before jumping full-time into uh, the literary world. Tell us about that mission and that transition from law to, uh, to the uh, ro- life of a novelist. Yeah, that was just a, I mean, a straight up mistake. I mean, I um, I did, was studying English at university. I enjoyed that. It was just a, you know an elaborate excuse to read books. And then I did, okay, I'll stick around. I did a master's degree, but then recognized, okay, I don't really have the stuff to be a professor. There's other people that are better at this than I am. And so I kind of fell back as many people do into uh, the law. I thought this will be a job. I need a job at some point. And um, I knew pretty much like a month in that 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 wasn't for me either. I just um, just on some deep level recognized that that this was, a, a, you know, a, a, other, again, other people were kind of more passionate about it and I was faking it. But I finished the degree and made a deal with myself that if I finished the degree and was called to the bar, I'd get to go away and use whatever savings I had to write a novel. And because I was writing the whole time anyway, writing short stories and stuff. And, and getting so them published, too, and getting them published, right? Yeah, yeah. literary journals, university journals, magazines. And, um, and uh, that novel, that, that sort of that bargain, that Faustian bargain that I struck with a legal education was, turned out to be Lost Girls, which was my first published novel. And when I submitted that, or my agent submitted that book, it, to my surprise, was was taken up not just in Canada, but in the US and elsewhere and two book deals. And, and quite abruptly, I went from, oh, you know, this is a purely kind of existential quest to, I can make, at least for the immediate future, I can make my living at this. And so that was the first time I started to entertain the possibility that this could be a practical career. Because when you're a writer, you're solitary, you don't have an audience, you really don't know until you've submitted it to your editor or people to read to see what reaction. So you didn't 
did you did did you have confidence in your own work when you uh, were writing, or you're just doing it for your own uh, creative satisfaction? Bit of both, you know. I, I had confidence that the novel was interesting, that it, or at least that it achieved what I wanted it to achieve. I recognized at the same time that it was a strange hybrid. It was a legal thriller, a courtroom drama. There were ghosts in it. There was a monster, a lady in the lake. It was pulling people down under the water, and so it had a lot of elements of the gothic and horror. Uh, it was there was not really, you know, when I was being asked by my agent, like, what kind of comps. What kind of comparisons would you give this book to make my job easier? And I couldn't help her because I, I, I was like, well, um, well, you know, it's a little bit of uh, John Grisham, but a lot of Stephen King. And she's like, well, that's not terribly helpful. Um, so I had doubts about it commercially, yeah. but I had confidence in it in terms of for better, or for worse, this is where I want to be. Your timing is also probably fairly good because you, you, got into the publishing uh, world when there was a, a growing appetite for psychological thrillers. I mean, you mentioned earlier growing up with Stephen King and things like that, but there really wasn't a, a, a large uh, pool of psychological thrillers. What do you think has happened in society to make us want to embrace more of this, I wouldn't say supernatural, but out of this world kind of experiences that you reflect in your book, books? Yeah, it's 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 certainly we're in a moment, aren't we? Um, uh, in mainstream, there's a lot of storytelling where that it employs uh, the supernatural to one degree or another, or hints at it. I think, you know, you bump into people in the street or walking the dog. I do anyway, and we kind of think of talk about current events, whether they're kind of geopolitical, global, or domestic. And we, if you're like me, the conversation often kind of ends in or or finds finds itself with both of you, both people looking at each other and going, it's just so weird, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. It's a crazy world. And so when you're living in a crazy world that feels, it feels either science fictional or like a horror movie to begin with, I think it releases us to kind of pursue um, the, the sort of further edges of fiction, perhaps in a way when we were, we felt more secure in reality. Um, that we didn't or we sort of felt well that's ridiculous or that's that's beyond what our diet requires and so i think that's why i mean the, the world is so deeply strange now anyway i think we seek the even stranger does the spark for your creative idea come from uh, contemporary things that you meet people on the street or read like for example the trade mission involved people going to was it brazil or yeah. south america uh, so do you find a real life thing and mm, i wonder if that would make a good setting for like where, what is it do you start with the setting the hook the characters what what do you start with before you sit down and expand it's typically for me um some kind of question that gnaws at my brain and it's it's usually not immediately recognized as this would be a great idea for a novel that comes often a little bit later um so whatever that thing that my brain won't let me get rid of it could be a topical concern right now i'm writing um novels under a pen name mason Coyle, and they're sci-fi they're sci-fi thrillers with horror elements and so in those cases they are questions about technology or fears, frankly, that I have about technology that I'm exploring in stories. So the kickoff point is off, often sort of comes in disguise. It's, or it could be a character, it could be 
um, someone that, or an event um, that my, so in my current novel, very quickly, my dad, who, as I mentioned, was an ophthalmologist in Stratford, he would come home and tell stories about the hospital, you know, patients that he had, or local, he would have a lot of, yes, some of it was gossip, but, but some of it was horrific, you know, car accidents or patients that he had, and he would try to reassemble. And some of that, after all these years, is now finding itself being dramatized in this book I'm writing. So it can sometimes be going deep into the psychological mental archives, or it can be a contemporary concern or obsession. Yeah, I was going to say earlier that, uh, you know, you know you're successful when if you want to take your career in a new direction, you have to come up with a, a pen name uh, to <laughs> take your creativity in a new direction. So your alter ego is Mason Coyle. Mason Coyle, yeah. Coyle being, speaking of Northern Ireland and Ireland, it's a good Irish name. It would be with a Y in Ireland, though, no? It, or, it could. Yeah. It, it comes in both forms. I think probably a Coyle with an I probably has more of a Protestant bent, but... Uh, yeah. We could, I could go either way. <laughs> when I think of coil, I think of a coiled spring. So there must be something in your in your uh, Mason coil upcoming books that is sort of like something, some tension that's going to be released at some point. Was that part of the uh, the idea? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the first book, William has a has a big. Uh, well, they all are kind of featured with a you know a big twist, um, among other things. And so yeah, that's the coiled spring that will uh, jump out at you at the end of the book. So you've got William, and you have a second one coming out later this year, right? Uh, what's it called? Uh, next year, and it's called Exiles. Exiles. Um, so this one about uh, William is coming out later this year, right? Correct, yep. And it's about AI. Let's talk about AI, because there's been a lot of talk. We had two strikes in Hollywood, the writers and the uh, the uh, screen, uh, screen Actors uh, Guild, and authors, very prominent authors uh, like Margaret Atwood and others have all been talking about uh, AI and um, the intellectual uh, theft that's been going on in terms of educating the AI engines. And of course, there's that lawsuit now, the New York Times is defending itself. So where do you stand on AI and how are you sort of weaving that as a warning, I suppose, into your, into your book? Well, on the matter of intellectual property, I too, like many of my colleagues, was the victim of thievery. So I did one of those searches that dis discloses what, how many, if any, of your books have been used illegally uh, by chat, GBT, and other uh, sort of uh, other these developers. Um, and in my case, all but one had been stolen. And so what so, question do you ask the chat bot to discover that? How do you do that? What's the question you have to ask? I think in this case, it was a, it was a resource that an, uh, a journalist or an investigator had dug up so that in, in, in he or she turned it into a search engine so that authors could sort of find out what books had been sort of collected to be used to develop what is now ChatGBT. So I think if you ask ChatGBT, hey, what have you stolen from me? It probably would deny it. And, uh, you know. But so on that level, just on a sort of a legal personal misgiving level, um, I'm angry that my work has been stolen in the same way that anyone would be angry if their you know, garden gnomes were taken in the middle of the night. Um, but on a larger, you know, frankly, kind of existential level, I'm, I'm very worried about uh, the yes, the livelihood of artists, but also the kind of world that we seem to be choosing to be making here that instead of using these tools to assist creative human beings, 
we are uh, diminishing or erasing creative human beings in favor of these machines that create kind of gloppy, stolen, remanufactured nonsense. And so what is it about us as a kind of tech hungry society that we seem to actively prefer uh, the products of a non-thinking uh, uh, mechanical thief over people who might provide an actual insight into the way we live our lives. So that would be, I have a lot of other concerns, but the main one is what world are we making when we are giving such liberties to these uh, agents? Well, we're at that turning point. Governments all over the world are now trying to play catch up with various regulations to try to curb the internet and regulate things that have really gone you know, through a kind of a Wild West uh, development without any sort of guardrails for the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, and that's it's true in so many aspects of technology. You know, so, so the um, something I'm working on now is about the sort of neuro implants that are we are um, already at the experiment deep into the experimental phase. There's indications that a lot of these corporations are in such a, a race to be the first to put bugs into our heads that will, you know, sort of steal our dream, quite literally steal our dreams, um, that they are doing all sorts of illegal things already. And so uh, on every front, we seem to be yielding the floor to technologies that not only do we not know how they're going to play out in our lives, whether they're good or bad, but again, we seem to be kind of collectively cheering it on. It's sort of like, yes, bring on some extremely dangerous, unknown possible threat to our existence that sounds fun and or you know, that should be encouraged and and uh that maybe you know i might be a real old-fashioned uh you know sort of uh fuddy-duddy but i'm i'm that worries me a lot in terms of your own process andrew uh how do you embrace technology in your work when you come up with an idea are you writing any notes down on a pen on paper or is everything uh digital for you how do you track your ideas I am like, I am really kind of, you know, digital in that, in an almost sort of a, the most minimal way possible. So I write on, on a screen. I, uh, but, but in terms of note taking, I take a, I have a little book, a little pen in my, in my jacket pocket uh, that I take to the dog park. And if something comes to me, I write it down. I have the same except waterproof in the shower. Um, waterproof. So, <laughs> I like do, a... yeah, no. It was a very uh, treasured gift from a few years ago. It's a waterproof, so like shower. a waterproof, uh, a pen that it goes on plastic paper or whatever. Is that right? Or... Yeah, you no, know, exactly. Because I, I know I'm not alone in this. I find I have the best thoughts uh, of my day in the middle of a hot shower. So, but when I, I used to sort of come out of that shower and I, it would be gone by the time I was toweled off. So, I, some people uh, sing. Some people sing in the shower. You actually concoct novels in the shower. That's yeah, I, I figure out ways, interesting ways that my characters can die. Um, so, <laughs> so I am very kind of uh, limited in. I rely on technology, but I'm very limited in my use of it. Right. But the publishing world has changed so much that digital is now an important distribution method. Give us your feeling like it's always wonderful to have a book in your hands, your book in the hands, and see the author's name in it and maybe get a signature. But uh, give me a sense of how your books are distributed uh, versus, you know, ebooks, audiobooks, uh, paper, you know, uh, on, on traditional. Uh, hardcover, softcover. What's the what's the breakdown between all those methods of reaching your audience? 
Well, it's the, you know, it, it's funny, the, the paper seems to drive, I'm talking now about, you know, sort of mainstream traditional publishing, you know, big house publishing, the paper books still drive the marketing. So people going into bookstores or looking online at physical books, buy, and then of course, buying and reading physical books, that drives the engine typically for people to buy the ebook version or the audiobook version. Um, having said that, those kind of strictly kind of digital versions increasingly are taking up a greater part of the portfolio of sales. And so it's a little bit of a chicken and an chicken and egg problem of how do we how do we get enough interest in this book to have people buying a whole bunch of the ebooks uh, or audiobooks? Uh, well, the only way to get there is have a successful, you know, uh, print publication. Oh, how do you do that? Oh, well, that's tricky because there's no essentially very little media coverage in newspapers or radio or television anymore. Oh, so how do you promote a book? We don't know is really the answer. So even though publishing overall is doing quite well at the moment, I think it's a mystery to even publishers as to uh, why that is. So like you, like a musician, you have to build a social media following and engage with your fans directly. Is that one of the, the tactics they're using, Andrew? It's certainly a tactic they're using. I, on that point, and I know some people have had great success with that. Yeah. Um, I, I am very doubtful about that. I'm very skeptical about platforms. I think with, again, a number of notable exceptions. And, and in nonfiction, I think it's a, 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 an author platform is, is essential. But with fiction writers, I think I see a lot of colleagues who spend a lot of time online pursuing that uh, pot of gold. And I, I do think that they're wasting their time. I, I think writing a good book, um, finding a good agent and, and or publisher for it, um, those remain far more important than having 20,000 followers or you know, 200,000. Book tours used to be important. Sometimes uh, really big celebrities do books and they have tours. What about you? Do you what merit, what value do in-person or, or book appearances have in generating interest in sales? They used to be, you're right, they used to be big. I mean, pre-pandemic, I had publishers who would, uh, yeah, put me on planes and send me across the country and do readings and stuff. I don't think uh, those events have recovered uh, quite to the same level post-pandemic as they were prior to it. So that's a problem. Um, I think book tours at this point are largely, unless you're, again, you're a household name, are largely done for the benefit of, you know, meeting and greeting and, and uh, having, uh, having a fun time. It's a wonderful experience for the author and you meet, you meet friends and make friends. But as a, a generator of book sales, again, I think it's uh, marginal. Writing is a job just like any other uh, art form, you have to be very disciplined. Uh, what is your nine to five, uh, so to speak? How do you discipline yourself to treat it like a job? I think it, I think the answer is in your question, you know, it is to treat it like a job and to not, um, not allow yourself to, you know, succumb to those romantic, uh, those romantic inclinations of, well, I have to wait to be inspired or, I need to explore my feelings or I have to, you know, the, the timing has to be right. I think you need to kind of professionalize it. And so you approach the work on a daily basis, even if you're not, you know, not feeling like it. Or, or if yesterday's work is quite clearly there on the screen and it's plainly crap, uh, you have to kind of, you know, wrestle with it 
or move on or any, any one of the techniques that you use to kind of sit in the chair and do the work. And so for me, um, a really magical key has been the word count. So don't count hours, count words. And you're not allowed to get up from the desk for lunch or a coffee or anything until you've achieved X, where X is your daily word count. I have found that very Presbyterian <laughs> carrot and whip uh, to be very helpful. So what would be your daily schedule as a writer? How would you start your day? You mentioned having a shower in the middle of the day. So your, your schedule is <laughs> probably all over the, all over the map. It's yeah, it's all over the eyes. You're right. The, the, the shower comes later in the day when I'm like, I'm out of ideas, time for a shower. Um, but the morning is get up, make coffee for uh, my wife. Um, and I don't know how that deal got struck, but yes, that's my job. And make lunch for my son before he goes to school. And then immediately following that, come up here where I am now uh, to my office and get to work. So I find my, you know, intellectually, creatively, my, the, the sort of course of my day is one long decline from morning into the rest of the day. So I try to capture the clever moment if, if I, you know, on a good day at the beginning and then later tend to the bill paying, uh, the getting back to emails, all that stuff. So you don't seek out different locations. Oh, I'm going to go to the coffee shop or I'm going to go to the pub or I'm going to go here. You pretty well stick to your craft in your, in your writer's room, so to speak. Yeah, I do. And I, I can, I can work elsewhere when I'm traveling or, 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 you know, I, I've done a lot of work in this most recent book sitting in parking lots outside of hockey arenas because my son is a, uh, uh, He's in minor hockey, and so anyone who is in that situation knows what that's like. So uh, I see a lot of lobbies of old City of Toronto arenas and uh, parking lots where I have my laptop at. But typically, yeah, I'm not a cafe. I, I, I don't like writing usually to music or um, I know some people who need that, right, who need that activity around them. Right. Um, I, I'm quite happy here on my own. It's also uh, going to mention uh, I'm a, I'm a, a writer and documentary maker, and what I find about my craft is deadlines. If I have a deadline, I know that I have to get it done, even if I'm not feeling well. You know, I have to get a, a deadline. Do you set the deadlines for yourself, or does the publisher say I need this by X date? The publisher will often have in the contract if you dig deep enough, there's a date in there, but it, it's quickly forgotten by everyone. So. I, like you, I set my own deadlines and then pretend as though it is very, very strict, um, even if that's not the case, because I'm, yeah, I'm like you, you know, and, and you, as you, if you're like me, as you approach the end of a project, you typically are going faster and faster in a good way, right? There's a, you see it now, you see the finish line, you know what this thing can be, and you're just exhilarated uh, to see the end of it, you know, you can sort of just taste it. And so, the hardest part is kind of the first quarter, you know, just just moving that boulder from a sitting position. But once it gets rolling, it's uh, unstoppable. Now, a good writer is is always uh, um, grateful or benefits from a good editor. Um, your editor is your first audience. Does your uh, he or she, uh, your editor, come back to you and say, "Well, I don't understand this." What is the relationship like, and how? do they serve as your first sound or one of your first sounding boards? 
you're you're absolutely right. A good editor is uh, uh, rare, and, in, and frankly, an increasing rarity because they are so overworked. Uh, as publishing companies have kind of cut shrunk, back on staff, yeah, cut back on staff, and 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 sort of they've become more marketing and publicity focused as opposed to kind of you know. Uh, editing focused, frankly. Um, so if you find one, as I have, I'm working, my uh, editor now um, is uh, at P Putnam in, in the States, uh, and she is superb and, and, and not just good at her job, as she would be with anyone, but she really gets what I'm doing. And that is enormous, that kind of shared, we can disagree and do disagree on multiple points, but there's that fundamental sense of we're trying to do the same thing together and I in the past have had relationships with the editors where that wasn't the case or wasn't as true to, uh, as it is now and that's where you have problems right it's very hard to convince someone that uh you know that's not the book I'm trying to write and they're saying well it should be this I mean that's a that's an irreconcilable difference and so um you need to have an editor who can cannot whether they're faking it expertly or genuinely kind of in your head. That's the starting point, and then from there you can debate wording and length and plotting and pace and all the other elements from a from a shared space of comradeship. They would have to embrace the genre, though. How could an editor who doesn't like psychological thrillers? Uh, be an editor of psychological thrillers. Do you have to have an investment in the in the genre to be a good editor? I would say yes. I would say yes. I think again, sometimes I've encountered editors who say, you know, I, I can I can edit anything, and I sort of think uh, that can't possibly be true. I mean, or at least you can't do it as well. So yes, there has to be, and you can quickly get there. I find you know you kind of whether you're you're conversationally talking about uh, a movie that you saw last weekend or a book that you've read. And with the editors that you know, this is gonna this is gonna be fun. You're very within a minute. You're squealing uh, about something that you're both excited about. It, there has to be squealing. <laughs> <laughs> Virtual, like at a distance. You're doing this all over Zoom, I'm sure. Uh, yes, these it. yes these days, yeah. sadly. What about the debate over titles? Uh, I hear a lot of authors talking about they come to it with a project with the title for the book and, oh, we need this short title or this. What is the uh, creative debate that goes on between the writer and the publisher over how to, obviously also different languages too, but how do you come up with the titles that make you happy and make them happy? That is one of the great publishing mysteries. You know, the, the titles for me, in my experience, are, are one of those things where Everyone, everyone involved in the book, myself, the editor, marketing, publicity, uh, the executives, um, everyone has an opinion on a title and everyone thinks that they're right. I mean, there are, you know, other topics or other elements where I, I will certainly you look like I don't know anything about marketing or I, but everyone thinks they know what a good title is. And, but you don't until after the fact, you know, I mean, so I've repeatedly had the experience of other books that had titles that everyone was in agreement that this is a great title. This is, oh, and the sales team is so excited. They can sell the hell out of this thing based on the title alone. And then the book does nothing, you know, in the marketplace. At, and then at that point, everyone blames the title. Oh, you know, we, we were doomed. We had, it was, it was a terrible title and vice versa. I've had books that, um, you know, everyone was a bit like, oh, I love this book. I have my doubts about the title. And then it works. And everyone is 
first to say I knew it. Uh, with that title, we couldn't lose. And so it's a, it's a very bogus science, but everyone thinks that they're an expert at it. And your books have been translated in multiple languages. That also must be uh, a challenge. It's a real craft to find the author's vision in different languages. How have your books done in those alternate languages? What's the feedback been from your, your readers? Well, fortunately, I don't uh, read or understand any of them. So I couldn't tell you whether the translations are good or bad, and I suspect that's a good thing. But it's it's really kind of you're so removed from it, both geographically as well as you know, kind of uh, you know the on on the ground campaigns that you get these news bulletins of how a book is doing in a different market, and it's just a delightful, unexpected uh, story. You know, for example, I'm probably way better known in Brazil than I am anywhere else in the world, and that's a puzzling uh, thing. And it, it, it was a few books ago, a, a, a book of mine, the demonologist just took off there. And uh, by far the most correspondence I get is from Brazil. The, if I put something on social media or if a new book comes out there, it kind of blows up. And so, so I'm big in Brazil and, and you know, who, who that had nothing to do with me or my efforts or social media presence. It's just pure, wonderful accident. Speaking of the demonologist, it's one of a few um, books that have been optioned, right? Tell us about which you've been working in the film industry uh, a little bit. Tell us which books are are coming, uh, have been optioned, and and what is uh, coming to the screen. Oh, there's a lot. I wish I could say that that you know that they I that they all are for sure, but uh, they're all there's many of them in development. So um, Oracle, my audio only book that uh, Audible did. That's in development with um, Amazon Studios for a TV series. And uh, The the Residence, um, my most recent uh, uh, novel under Andrew Piper, my, my actual name, uh, which is a ghost story based on real events set in the White House, is in development uh, at um, Sony as a, as a movie. Um, and I have a little, yeah, I even have a list here. Uh, uh, William is uh, hasn't been announced yet, but we have a director attached and a, a producer attached, and so um, we're hoping to take that to market with a script in the next month or two. And um, oh, and Ash, which is the the filmic title for The Dam, uh, also has a script and producers attached, and hasn't yet been announced. But so there's probably five. That's exciting. It uh, it keeps your um your creative ideas going in, in different directions, reaching different audiences. It does. And, it, and it's sort of, um, it's just, it's just fun to think about, you know, what if one of these things, I mean, I love movies, uh, TV, frankly, less so, but um, I love movies. The idea of, of something that I've created being t- turned into a, a movie that you can go to the, uh, you know, go to the cinema to see is just, is thrilling. And, and my, when my phone rings and there's the 310, uh, you know, LA area, LA code. area code. Yeah. Oh, that just, I mean, if you were, had, if you had electrodes attached to me, you'd, you'd see, you know, my heart rate jump, you know, Oh, is this the call? Is this the call? It does take a long time though. Development is uh, one of those things that seems to roll on, uh, on forever, but, uh, it's, uh, you said it, great, <laughs> great when you, uh, when you get the green light, so to speak. It would be, I, I'm waiting. So right now you're writing as Mason Coyle. You've got uh, William coming out, and you've got a book coming out in 2025. 
Does Andrew Piper uh, have a book uh, uh, coming out? Are you doing multiple things at once? Andrew Piper, I know we got to get him off the bench. Um, he, he right now I'm writing uh, Mason Coyle books. So as you mentioned, there's uh, I'm editing number two now in the final edits. It's coming out uh, next year, and then I'm working on what I hope to be Mason Coyle three. So they're all kind of they're, they're by no means a series. But they're kind of related in the sense same characters or different characters. Totally different characters, oh. but exploring technological anxiety in a in a push to a horrific extreme. And so, I think when book when Coil Three is done, uh, old old Piper might get the tap to uh, you know okay you can you can get back in the game. But um, right now I'm 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 all Mason. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Mason slash Andrew, it's been uh, uh, great chatting with you. And uh, um, we didn't really much explore the Stratford connection, but you are a Stratford uh, native through and through. And it's uh, it's interesting about Stratford because we seem to produce our, our share of people who have done well in the arts and theater. I, I guess it has to be to do with the, the, the environs in which Stratford is, uh, is situated. Would you say it's been a really good influence on your, uh, on your life and development? Oh yeah. I had a great, it was a great um, childhood and youth and uh, I love, I was so lucky to grow up in Stratford in so many ways, but uh, to your point, I, for me personally, I think Stratford's a great Gothic setting, you know, just the, the Victorian architecture, the size, it's not too big, it's not too small. So there's, there's drama, ha- secrets, haunted houses. Um, for, a, for someone like myself who had a gothic inclination from an early age, I think Stratford was a great place to imagine all the kind of creepy things that were going on behind closed doors. And so um, I, I attribute a lot of my current obsessions to the happy accident of growing up in Stratford. That's great. Well, let's wrap up with a reminder of how listeners can track your progress. Uh, give us your website and all of the details they can do to follow you. Oh, sure. Uh, I am at uh, andrewpiper.com. So that'll be a, a nexus of information uh, just generally about what, what's going on. Um, but if you're interested in news, I'm still uh, hanging on by my fingertips on Twitter at, um, uh, Andrew, uh, at Andrew Piper, I believe. I uh, should know this, but anyway... You know, you sort of Google me and it, I'll be there. So I'm active there and on Instagram too. All right. Well, listen, Andrew, great uh, seeing you virtually. And hopefully next time you're in Stratford, we'll get a chance to meet uh, in person face to face. Thanks very oh. much for uh, joining me on the Stratford Slice. Thanks, Craig. Thank you. The Stratford Slice is sponsored in part by Dancing Waters Boutique, treasures from Asia in the heart of downtown Stratford. Visit them at 11 York Street or dancingwatersboutique.com. And a special shout-out to Vista Radio and our friends at mystratfordnow.com for hosting the podcast.